Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Candidate Bill Clinton ran for the White House in 1992, condemning the butchers of Beijing, that is, against the June 1989 military crackdown in Tiananmen Square and throughout China. After a few years of wrestling with how to address human rights, in the mid-1990s, the Clinton administration implemented a policy of building a constructive strategic partnership with China to address common areas of interest like nonproliferation, climate change, and global growth. Much of that policy was putting in place the mechanics of diplomacy that were never instituted in the 1980s. A presidential hotline, getting China into international institutions, and regular presidential visits. During one such visit, President Clinton hosted a remarkable press conference in 1997 with then-Communist Party General Secretary Jiang Zemin. In front of his Chinese counterpart, Clinton eloquently offered this judgment of the Tiananmen Massacre and continued political repression. The United States recognizes that on so many issues, China is on the right side of history, and we welcome it. But on this issue, we believe the policy of the government is on the wrong side of history. There is, after all, now a universal declaration of human rights. In her discussion with me, Secretary Albright talks about her role in those presidential visits as the U.S.'s chief diplomat. She highlights the importance of building a good working relationship with the Chinese perm rep at the United Nations, so that when rocky times came, she had established lines of communication to avoid escalation. That crisis came in the form of the mistaken U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, in May 1999. But we begin our conversation with Secretary Albright's earlier work on Capitol Hill, her visit to China as a White House staffer in the late 1970s, and her inkling of a momentous diplomatic change she learned about because of her smart decision to select a closet-sized office in the West Wing to be in the middle of it all. Secretary Albright, thank you so much for taking time on this Georgetown project. So nice to see you again. Your personal history is extremely well known with Eastern Europe. I wanted to talk about your history with China. And particularly, you worked for Senator Muskie and then uh, the National Security Council under President Carter. Can you talk about your first trip to China, which was kind of in that time in the 1970s? I'm delighted to, and I'm very happy to be a part of this. What happened was that I had worked for Senator Muskie as his chief legislative assistant, and then I went to uh, the National Security Council staff um, to work for Dr. Brzezinski in congressional relations. I had always thought that Ed Muskie was one of the really remarkable senators and chairman of the Budget Committee, and I was bound to make clear at the Carter White House what an important person he was. So that was a time when there were an awful lot of CODELs that were going to China. Congressional delegations. Congressional mm -hmm. delegations in order for the people in Congress to understand a little bit more what was going on with China. And so somehow at the last minute, um, somebody that was supposed to chair the CODEL couldn't do it, and so I suggested Ed Muskie. So then Ed Muskie asked me to come on the CODEL with him, 
and it was uh, before normalization. So this is, sorry, after Nixon's trip, but before 1979 when diplomatic relations were established. Um, And so what happened was we started out in Shanghai, and um, it really was so totally different, um, very sparse, Mm -hmm. um, gray Mm -hmm. in many different ways. Um, And I was back to Shanghai recently, so... Uh, just the comparison. And I would get up very early in the morning and walk around by myself. Mm -hmm. And there were the people there in their gray Mao suits. Um, Were they exercising in the morning, riding bicycles? No, mostly walking around in some way. They were fascinated by my shoes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember what kind of shoes they were? Just plain old high heels. But I was fascinated by the fact that despite that everybody had on these gray suits, I looked up and the laundry was colorful. And I thought, "Uh uh-huh, there is something different going on underneath. And that is really my memory. Mm -hmm. And so when I've gone to Shanghai since then, Mm The laundry, colorful laundry has been replaced by neon lights, mm-hmm. and so it's still colorful. <clears throat> we then went on to Beijing, and uh, were able to really, again, see um, a very different kind of Beijing with lots of bicycles, but not a lot happening. Had quite a few meetings, because this was a congressional delegation, mm-hmm. and there really were fascinating discussions about what was going on in both countries. Mm-hmm. And was, sorry, a lot of the discussion about the Soviet Union or what was happening in that part of the relationship, or was it really just trying to learn more about what was happening I interior within China? it was more about learning what was happening. Um, and I think the thing that was so interesting, and I remember some of the comments by the, by the other members of Congress, who said, they all work so hard. Uh, We need more people, you know, that are so dedicated to working so hard. And so um, I think they were very impressed with what they saw, the difficulty of the work, um, the uh, possibilities for the country. Just a personal aspect of this, what happened was that Dr. Brzezinski didn't want me to stay the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, because he said I had other things to do. So I had to leave them uh, after Shanghai mm-hmm. and Beijing. They went on and saw other parts oh. of, of uh, China. And I think they learned a lot. And, and Ed Muskie, I think, appreciated going. But it was a fascinating time to go before normalization and then kind of witness how the whole normalization process was taking place. And you had been to places in uh, other parts of the world, how would you say at that time kind of China compared to other kind of developing countries or or Western Europe? Uh, I think that China really, um, and I shouldn't make a judgment just based on a couple of days, but in the severity of it in so many ways and the kind of um, hard life, you Mm -hmm. could see that there was really a hard life going on. Uh, and that there wasn't uh, a kind of a sense that something different could happen, but it was severe. I had gone to um, a lot of, uh, I had spent my own time in going to Central and Eastern Europe, and so um, even in comparison to also communist Central Mm -hmm. and Eastern Europe, uh, this was pretty tough going, Mm -hmm. I thought. So if I could fast forward to your time at the United Nations when you were ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and you had to deal with China. Li Jiaoxing was the Chinese ambassador to Can the U.N. Can I go at the time. back Please, on of course. something? Yeah, yeah. Because one of the parts, 
I, I, my job was to do congressional relations, mm-hmm. and I'm one of these people that had a choice when I got to the White House of either having a fancy office in the old executive office mm-hmm. building or literally a closet in the West Wing. I chose the closet in the West Wing, and it was right near the Situation Room. And there, were all, there was always somebody going into the Situation Room for some kind of meeting, and I did my kind of uh, content analysis by watching who was going into the Situation Room. And all of a sudden, there were an awful lot of the China experts that were going, uh, led by Mike Oxenberg. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so there was a sense that something was going on. This was 78, it must yes, have been. Mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. there was not an awful lot of discussion that went on around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, I, when, I was, when I went to China, it was in 78. Um, so this was uh, just around that whole time. But there was this kind of sense that something was going to happen by just the gatherings. And then, of wow. course... Uh, there was the Declaration of Normalization and an awful lot of uh, kind of a sense of having done the right thing mm-hmm. by the Carter administration and Dr. Brzezinski and the pleasure of Deng Xiaoping coming to the United States and a sense of celebration mm-hmm. and of having accomplished something that was akin to what Secretary Kissinger had done. Right. On that, I wonder if I could ask, I know uh, Dr. Brzezinski was a mentor of yours. When I went to graduate school at Size, he was I had a chance to take his yeah. class, an incredible uh, professor. Uh, <clears throat> he wrote a note to uh, President Carter just before Deng Xiaoping's visit. And I wonder if I could get you to react to it just to kind of see yeah. where we are uh, now on U.S.-China relations. He said, our long-term objective is to include China in the international framework of cooperation, which we are attempting to build among the key nations of the world. The global dispersal of power precludes the possibility of either a Pax Americana or a world order through Soviet American condominium, but we believe we can attain national security in a world of diversity in part by cultivating good relations with the newly emerging countries, none of which is more important than China. This was in 1979. How do you think um, Professor Brzezinski's, Dr. Brzezinski's analysis holds up now? I think it, as always, is a brilliant analysis in terms of how he saw things, and I think that they evolved in that way. And we can talk more about how this view that China could be a partner um, in an international system and how it was worth looking at the various steps to make that happen. So in many ways, the strategy that was followed out by first President Carter and then by other presidents, uh, certainly by President Clinton also, was something that fulfilled what Dr. Brzezinski had said and written. And by the way, the interesting part about him, I took a course from him at Columbia Mm -hmm. in 1963 when he talked about comparative communism, Mm -hmm. if you can believe that, when everybody thought it was just monolithic. All the same. So Mm -hmm. uh, he really was a great mentor. Wow. Well, on international systems, I wonder if we could move to the UN and your time there, because I think that was a time when China was... Uh, had joined the UN in 1971 over U.S. objections, and uh, Li Jiaoxing, I think, was the your counterpart yeah. as their Chinese perm rep, and you were the U.S. Um, uh, ambassador. Uh, what do you remember about that time, or kind of what issues that you had to work with China on, or was China kind of a secondary thought as as you know we were moving forward with U.S. foreign policy objectives? Um, there was a different uh, ambassador, Li, just before Li okay. Jiaoxing, mm-hmm. but when I got there, and it followed even through when Li Jiaoxing was there, is that um, there was a sense that China 
didn't really participate in discussions very much unless it had something to do with interference in internal affairs. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, they were not kind of active uh, discussions. And the thing that I think most people don't understand is most of the meetings of the Security Council don't take place in that fancy room. Mm -hmm. They take place in a back room where there's an awful lot of discussion. You still do sit with your country signs in front of you, mm -hmm. but there really is a lot of, of discussion. It's a real dialogue. A real dialogue. And, and then you also see the same people over and over again. It's kind of like a college seminar. Mm -hmm. And you get to know people very well. But it was interesting to try to get the Chinese to participate to the point, and I felt this was when Li Xiaoxing came, that we were friendly enough for me to give him a little blue ball so that he could strengthen his hand to raise <laughs> it to, to talk. Um, and because there were clearly meetings of the P2 with the British and then the P3 with the French, and then when I was there, actually the P4, or just with the Russians because it was uh, post uh, the communist period. Um, but it was very hard to get the Chinese really to participate. The other part that I remember very well is um, they had a hard time getting their instructions because night is day. Mm -hmm. um, because and, of the time difference. Right, and they could always um, have an excuse when the vote came um, in mm -hmm. order not to be able to go into blue mm -hmm. uh, and try to figure out how to vote. And the time that Sorry, go into blue? What I'm is sorry, that phrase? What happened was that uh, resolutions would be written, mm -hmm. um, and then there was a lot of discussion of them. And going into blue literally would be printed in blue. I see. Um, and then you would theoretically be ready. You'd get your instructions and be able to go into the fancy room mm -hmm. and vote on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's interesting because partially their uh, reluctance to get involved. Uh, one, I didn't. It didn't seem as though they had a, a larger world view mm -hmm. at that time, uh, and also because they had trouble getting their instructions. But it changed in many different ways because I think that uh, we pushed Americans to try to get them more involved in discussion. And I don't want to overstate my own importance, but I think that when Li Jiaxin came to Washington and I became Secretary of State, um, we had a relationship that had developed um, either over the blue ball mm -hmm. or just trying to um, uh, talk to each other more in this kind of seminar-like uh, atmosphere. Well, you had mentioned uh, sovereignty as being a particularly sensitive issue on the Chinese side, and this is a time, this was 93 to 97 when you were at yeah. the UN. This is at a time when, as you had mentioned, the kind of Cold War was over and the U.S. was looking more seriously at um, <clears throat> humanitarian intervention and kind of what the rules should be in the international community. Could you just express your understanding of how the Chinese saw it and how that differed from the U.S. view? I think that the thing that differed, because one of the things that was beginning to happen, one could say that we didn't know what was happening in other countries during World War II mm -hmm. or whatever. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but we could say that. Uh, and all of a sudden we knew a lot about what was happening everywhere. And there were some very serious issues that the UN Security Council was dealing with. It was the end of the Cold War, and um, it changed the relationship with the Russians. It meant that we really could have more discussion. Um, and we were concerned about what was happening specifically in the Balkans um, and also then in Africa. Um, and 
talking about, for instance, whether a, uh, a feeding program in Somalia had all of a sudden turned into an intervention in Somalia, mm-hmm. um, or what was happening um, in Latin America with Haiti. And so there really was a lot of discussion. Um, and one of the really hard parts uh, did have to do when the Chinese did get involved, uh, and I'd actually forgotten about this, but what happened was that we needed to get approval of a peacekeeping operation in Haiti. Okay. Um, and they were very concerned about it uh, because, in fact, um, Haiti had recognized Taiwan. Um, that and is, Haiti had diplomatic relations with Taiwan and not, not with mainland with, China. Not with mainland China. And so the Chinese were not very willing to support a peacekeeping operation uh, in uh, in Haiti, and yet we needed it very much. And so I did a lot of back and forth. And one of the problems diplomatically is if you are at a public meeting um, and there's somebody that you don't deal with, um, you don't shake hands with them or do anything like that. But um, And you try to be diplomatic at the same time. But I will never forget being in Port-au-Prince once the new president was being inaugurated, and all of a sudden the Taiwanese were everywhere. Uh, and because he, the Taiwanese representative there, was the highest ranking person, he was sitting on the platform uh, and uh, in, in visibility. And I come back to New York, and the Chinese ambassador was not very happy about uh, what happened. Uh, and uh, so there would they but you were somehow endorsing right. Taiwan's diplomatic Taiwan, status right. by, by and even it, attending. It was a real problem. And then Aristide came to the General Assembly and spoke and said thank you to the Taiwanese. So there were certain things mm-hmm. that the Chinese got very exercised about and were involved, and other times when they really were not part of the discussion. Oh, fascinating. So. Um, you come to Washington again after your, your service at the UN uh, to be Secretary of State. Uh, I was looking back at the late 1990s to look at your trips to China, and you your trips to China, uh, you went on four or five of them during that time, was ranked as some of the, the most of any Secretary of State until Secretary Clinton came, and then she went to China like eight or nine times. But, but you really spent a fair amount of time going. And one of the uh, things that I know you were doing in 97 and 98 was to get ready for President Clinton's trip there in 98. And at that time, it's hard to rem- remember, but human rights was just an incredibly important issue, kind of politically speaking, in Washington as to what was happening in China. What do you recall about your trips in 97 and 98 on human rights and just kind of more broadly about how those how those trips went? Well, on in 97 first, it was very interesting because uh, what had been... Um, uh, really the custom was the Secretary of State of the United States on his uh, trip um, would go to Europe and that was it and I decided that on my first trip I wanted to go to Europe and Asia and so I was going to China and Deng Xiaoping had just died and oh, wow. the question was whether they wanted me to come then or not and they decided they did which I thought was very interesting yeah. uh, but it was kind of a an, I think kind of a sense that they wanted to have a different relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, and then there were a number of times that I met with Chen Chi Chen, the foreign minister, which also, I have to say, is kind of the continuation of getting the Chinese more involved 
in uh, not just putting their hand up to vote, but in in what they thought about um, strategy. Mm-hmm. So what would happen is there was a meeting that I had with Chen Chi Chen once, and I said, here are my talking points. Give me your talking points, and why don't I, I would like to know what you think about overall national security strategy. So I must say that we did see them um, during the Clinton administration as being part of a system, of an international system, not kind of exotic group of people that never had any say in things, mm-hmm. in some ways kind of just pushing them to, mm-hmm. to get more involved. And I think it was the right thing to do because it was part to go back to Dr. Brzezinski's um, uh, note because it really was a way to try to try to bring them in. So I did go to China a number of times. One of the times, but I was still at the UN uh, when the... Um, uh, women's conference happened. Oh, right. mm-hmm. yep. And what happened was, and it was very uh, controversial, by the way, because what had happened was that um, the decision to have the women's conference in Beijing was taken before the Clinton administration. But then there were questions about why were we going there? And then when First Lady Hillary Clinton decided to go, why would the First Lady honor them with mm. this? Um, and then there were, you know, what would the delegations look like? What were we going to talk about? And the underlying concern was that uh, human rights in China or the way women were treated in China was somehow unfair or n- not representative of UN or American values. Was that the kind of crux well, of the they issue? Were part of the issue was that, that nobody, that we were going to talk, had to talk about values. I think one of the things that we felt was very important, and it was important, at the UN and then later is that the US uh, would always talk about what our values are. It might not be the only point uh, in the talking points, but there really, it was very basic that it always did happen. And so it was that, and then uh, how would they even run a conference and why were we giving all that honor Mm -hmm. uh, to the Chinese, especially when there was a problem with a dissident um, that was not being treated very well. And this is only a few years after the Tiananmen crackdown. So Tiananmen was in 1989, and this would have been in 93 or 94. Nine, yeah. So only a few years uh, after and, that. And I, but I have to say, and frankly, um, practically every administration that I've studied starts out not very well with the Chinese. And if you remember, President Clinton talked about the butchers of Beijing. Um, and so... That was one of the things that kind of uh, was in uh, kind of an overhang mm-hmm. of a variety of things. And so how would an American delegation behave? Uh, who would be a part of it? So it, it was uh, in some ways um, fairly treacherous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, so we decide to go and um, Hillary Clinton decided to go. Um, it was kind of complicated because many of us had not gone at that I mean I as I said I had mm-hmm. gone in 78 but but it was the in Beijing there were all kinds of reports about how they were getting ready for all these women mm-hmm. uh, um, all these lesbians mm-hmm. and so uh, there were we get there and somebody came up to me and said where is this country of lesbia <laughs> um, you know but or in the hotel where um, clearly there was a uh, one of the uh, people on the delegation was ironing, which you're not supposed to do in the hotel. And all of a sudden, somebody bursts into her room because they were watching. Or 
in the bathroom, uh, you could see that the mirror didn't fog up all the way, and so a number of things. So it was kind of um, difficult in a number of ways how we would operate. Uh, and uh, how the speaking uh, order would go, mm-hmm. and then uh, what happened with the NGO, the non-governmental organization <coughs> groups, where would they meet? Um, and so it looked fairly, uh, co- it was complicated, um, and logistically, in addition to ideologically. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible, mm-hmm. I have to say, because it was a huge conference, and it wasn't easy to, the speaker to get attention, mm-hmm. but when Hillary Clinton spoke, it was stunning, and she came out with women's rights or human rights and human rights or women's rights, and it resonated in the hall, mm-hmm. but it resonated throughout, oh. uh, and it certainly did in Beijing and at the NGO uh, conference, and then when we left, and one of the things that came as a result of that was a signing up by various countries to a national plan about how they would fulfill the Beijing Women's Conference. Mm. And so um, now when you say Beijing Women's Conference, it's just emblematic of the kinds of things that the Clinton administration thought was important to deal with the Chinese, but also never to forget about our value system. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. I Thank you for bringing back the Women's Conference. Yeah. That, that was a, a really critical area at the beginning of, yeah, of the that, administration yeah. to kind of talking about that. Um, so in your, your uh, 97 and 98 trips, could you just describe for people that haven't been in Chinese government meetings what they're like? We have kind of the big horseshoe and you're kind of seated at the, at the, at the, at the, the foot of the horseshoe or the U part of the horseshoe and kind of how those sorts of just the physical arrangements are in the meetings compare with maybe uh, European countries or other countries, that, that kind of mechanical setup of well, the diplomacy? I think, first of all, it's overwhelming how large everything is. Uh, The buildings are large. Um, Beijing um, had fewer bicycles then, but still very large. Um, And and a lot of people at it, very, very formal in terms of the way they are set up. Uh, The translations, this is not, there are very few people when you go with a delegation that actually speak Chinese or speak English. And so, um, they are very long meetings and very mm-hmm. formal, stylized um, in, in many ways. There's less kind of small talk even at the dinners mm-hmm. around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of dinners mm-hmm. with many, many, many courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly you don't know what they are. Uh, and But it's a very formalized aspect, I think much more so than any other place. <laughs> Um, and the European ones are um, people that know each other from somewhere. I think probably now there are so many people that know each other from different lives and all the interaction that's taken place since. But when I was there, it was pretty formal kind of meetings. And then um, ways of you didn't kind of have press conferences mm-hmm. uh, and getting in and out of the buildings and motorcades. And so. Uh, pretty formal, I have to say. So you had mentioned you had kind of formed a relationship with Li Xing in New York that then yeah. served you well here in Washington. Is there any other 
ways that you could see to kind of break through that bubble. One of the challenges on the Chinese side is they have to report up their chain if they become yeah. too close to an American, so that there's kind of limits on their side. But is there any way that, that you felt you could kind of break through with your Chinese interlocutor? Chen Chi-Chun is a, an amazing diplomat yeah. and, and was quite good on their side. But is there is there, is there a, is a way to bit, think about I it? I have to say. I mean, I felt that way with Li Xiaoqing, though mm. we had some difficult times. We'll but, get to that, yes. Yeah. But I, I do think... It's a little harder because you can't tell um, whether you're making their life more complicated, or at least at that stage. Good point. Um, in terms of getting too friendly, mm -hmm. and especially if it's somebody that you've known from somewhere before. Um, so I think it's it's a little bit harder. I can't say I, I really did. Um, maybe a little bit in the shopping department. <laughs> right. So uh, I wanted to... Um, <clears throat> bring you uh, to your time here in Washington when Li Jiaxing was ambassador and in April 1999, uh, a U.S. jet flying under uh, NATO command mistakenly bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Uh, and uh, let's just say the Chinese side was rather upset. I know you took a trip to the Chinese old Chinese embassy here in Washington. Can you talk a little bit about the lead up to it and, and that visit? Well, first of all, the thing that had happened was um, Actually, it was a Saturday night, and I had just been to the wedding of somebody that had worked for me, um, Kitty Bartles. And so then uh, I go home, and I turn on the TV, and I see Ambassador Jim Sasser um, at a window at our embassy with um, crowds outside yelling and uh, screaming. What happened <clears throat> was uh, during the war in Kosovo, um, it was not simple to decide that we would have an air campaign. Um, and we all talked about it in principals meetings and President Clinton agreed that we should do it. And, uh, but it wasn't simple in so many ways because when it started in March, um, the weather was bad and the Serbs put out decoys and um, just very complicated in every single way. And the, sorry, the rationale for the campaign was was that, in fact, the Serbs were ethnically cleansing the Kosovars, and we had tried every kind of diplomatic thing to make them stop. Um, multilateral uh, conferences, um, diplomatic, I did a lot of bilateral, all kinds of things to make them stop. We really did try the diplomatic tool. Um, and things kept getting worse, and we had intelligence that the Serbs were going to take even stronger action in terms of ethnically cleansing. And so after some difficulty, we made up our minds um, that we would, um, in fact, use air power. One of the issues, frankly, also was that uh, I had been, I was pretty sure that the Russians would veto whatever we were going to do in the Security Council. So we went to NATO with it. So it was a NATO operation. And this is because you felt the Russians and the Serbs had a particular bond, and so the Russians weren't going to support any sort of action? It was very clear the Russians would not. And, and what happened was I actually went to Moscow to talk to the Russians about it. Uh, for once, I was able to take advantage of the fact that in the hotel they had listening devices everywhere. And after the Prime Minister Primakov, at the time we had gone to the opera, had told me during intermission that they would not allow us to use the Security Council for this, I was able to call the foreign ministers one at a time, uh, and I figured that if I'd gotten the message wrong, the Russians would tell me because they clearly were listening. Um, so we did start in, in March, um, and so 
But then, all of a sudden, later, um, in this list of things that were going wrong, my executive assistant, I came in in the morning, and he said, sit down. I said, what's the matter with you? He said, just sit down. So I sat down, and he said, we have just bombed the Chinese embassy by mistake. So we knew, uh, you know, and tried to figure out what really had happened, and there had been a mistake. Um, and um, I have to intervene to tell you a story, which is that I had gone, after I was out of office and everything, I went up to talk to the Chinese, um, the caucus on China and, and Congress. And um, Dr. Kissinger was supposed to go, but he couldn't, so I went. And the person that was the head of the China caucus was Congressman uh, Kirk from um, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that we needed better relations with the Chinese, but he then told me that he was in the airplane. and I that he, no idea. I, and I, I was just stunned. Wow. And so then he said that when they landed back in Aviano and mm -hmm. they pushed back the canopy, they said, do you guys know what you just did? You bought the Chinese <laughs> embassy by mistake. Wow. So no anyway, well, so mm -hmm. um, we were trying to figure out what happened and, and um, whether it was the buildings looked the same or whether it was kind of like Park Avenue and Madison Avenue where the cross streets and the mm -hmm. numbers don't match and all that. So we knew, I mean, it did happen that we bombed them. So then to get back to the evening of the wedding, I'm watching and Jim Sasser's being trying to deal with the mobs, and I thought we need to do something about this. And these were Chinese students who were upset protesting, or bust in, yes. pro protesting that the U.S. had bombed the Chinese embassy right, in Belgrade. exactly. So I decided I needed to go to the Chinese embassy in Washington to try to explain to them that it was a mistake. So mm -hmm. I called... Because you felt like they didn't really... They, they, they were not. Anything. They were not. It was intentional. They, they thought it was intentional. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I decided I needed help going over there, so I called Joe Ra General Joe Ralston, who was vice chair of the Joint Chiefs, um, and I had to laugh. He was over at Fort Myers, and he said, I don't have a car, and I said, I'll come get you. Um, so I went over there, then I asked Tom Pickering and Ken Lieberthal mm -hmm. uh, to go with me, mm -hmm. and we get to the Chinese embassy, and there's my friend Li Zhaojing, and he is saying, uh, all of a sudden cameras come into the room and he is blaming us for everything and I kept saying it was a mistake it was a mistake and he said no it wasn't you know you're accurate I can't remember exactly but basically our reputation for accuracy your precision munitions knew right, exactly knew what they were exactly. hitting so I, I said we apologize it was a mistake and then I said to him may I speak to you alone and so, what, because you guys were in a room with we cameras, in a room and it was and, kind yeah. of a performance at right. the beginning. And so he said yes. So I asked everybody to leave, and I said to him, "Look, it really was a mistake, and I'm really sorry." And he, I don't want to get him into trouble even now. But he said, "I think I understand that, but I have to do what I have to do." And so it was kind of uh, he had to make clear that he was uh, uh, mad at us about everything. So then what happened was it's time to leave, and we're going out one of the doors, and all of a sudden these people who said they were journalists mm -hmm. uh, said, we can't let this have happened, and you killed our uh, colleagues and all but that. The, and sorry, I, the three Chinese officials right. who were killed in Belgrade were nominally Chinese journalists. Yes, right. Uh, and I we kept saying, 
I was amazed we got out because they were of so, the building itself. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were so angry at us. But I have to tell you something. It is something. Even later, uh, when I went to China again, um, they were absolutely convinced that we had done it on purpose, which then began to convince me that they must have been doing something in that Chinese embassy um, that we should have been suspicious about. But I do believe that it was an accidental bombing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, the three officers who were killed were nominally journalists. There are other folks who said they were intelligence yeah. officers. And so that kind of adds the level of confusion and the, yeah. the finger pointing. But it did something that stuck with all the relationships that I had after that with the foreign ministers that followed Chen Chi Chen. How so? Because every time that we had a conversation, no matter what we were talking about, they said, you know, you bombed our embassy. And so it was very much part of the talking points. Um, could I just end your time with the, the Clinton administration talking about China's entry into the World Trade Organization? And you are not the U.S. Trade Representative, and I've spoken to Charlene Barshevsky, and she's one of the, the folks who are on this series of, of podcasts. But from your recollection of the foreign policy aspect of it, the kind of strategy part of it, of bringing China into the WTO, at Zhurongji visited in 1999, just before the, that bombing. What do you recall about those discussions and what the thinking was about bringing China into the World Trade Organization? Well, I think it was a very important time in terms of to go back to the original uh, concept that we wanted to bring China into an international system. Uh, and there were questions about what their trading practices were and issues on intellectual property and a number of different things. Until um, then, because we were doing permanent trading relations with China, every year there would be questions about what were Chinese human rights activities, what were their various trading uh, principles. And I remember describing it, it was like pulling up a plant once a year to see if it's growing. Uh, and very hard in terms of having some kind of a functional relationship with the Chinese. And again, I repeat, we did have this view that we wanted China to be not just vote in the Security Council, but to be part of uh, strategy. What did they think was happening in the rest of the world? So that was the basis in addition to thinking about real problems that, that Ambassador Barshevsky was dealing with, with intellectual property issues and a variety of things. But part of the other reason was that bringing them into the WTO was a way to have help internationally on some kind of ways that the rules would be obeyed, that it wasn't just the United States telling the Chinese what to do, but that this was the international system and that they would respond to the international practices. That was the point of it. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, the Clinton administration left office in January 2001. Uh, you started this uh, very successful firm and have done a lot of other things. I know that you've gone back to China a number of times, uh, including from discussions with the Communist Party and uh, those are kind of interesting discussions the, with uh, leaders of the Democratic Party and Republican Party, although not the RNC and DNC specifically. I know one of the areas on foreign policy that the Communist Party deals with is North Korea and their kind of brethren in the communist world. How did you find those discussions, and, and can you describe what those are like for those who aren't in kind of party-to-party -party discussions? Well, the party discussions really uh, were, it was an invitation from the International Department of the Communist Party to political people. Um, and so initially, the Republicans didn't want to go. Uh, and so 
Uh, I thought the Democrats shouldn't go by ourselves, but the Republicans decided that they would go with us. And it was a little bit of a pickup team. Mm -hmm. And um, we were, uh, what happened, we're all sitting there on the Democratic side. Um, I chaired it, and Tom Daschle, uh, majority leader um, and or former majority, majority leader mm -hmm. and uh, Governor Howard Dean mm -hmm. and on the Republican side Rich Williamson who had been a negotiator for President Bush uh, Mike Duncan who had been chairman of the Republican Party and Vin Weber a former member of Congress and so what happened was that um, the uh, Chinese were explaining their party system mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I couldn't stand it and I said excuse me but our party system is a little bit different from yours. We don't know how many people we really have in the party. As party uh, members. As party members. And uh, we don't, nobody has to fill out an application or goes to party school. And one of the things when you're Secretary of State, uh, people don't um, speak unless you say, Ambassador Green, would you like to say something? So, but that is not how it worked. So Howard Dean pipes up and he says, we do know how many people we have because of the great database I established. And Mike Duncan, the Republican not to be outdone, said, yeah, and we did psychological profiles of 200 million people, and everybody's eyes are going around. Um, and this Rich Williamson that I didn't know until then sends me a note forever endearing himself, saying, well, if that's true, how come we lost the election? <laughs> so it was kind of crazy. But the, my question when we were meeting with that particular group was that um, why did they want to meet with us? Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that the reason is that they have pressure at the bottom of their pyramid between urban, rural, and rich and poor, and that they wanted to know what we did to mm -hmm. relieve the pressure because it was... Uh, what were the role of political well, parties in kind of mediating generally. society problems? And we so. had a number of meetings over the years with that group. There were other meetings where, in fact, um, that were sponsored by the Aspen Institute, mm -hmm. where we would have some discussions about North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we were kind of scoping each other out mm -hmm. um, in terms of what could and uh, couldn't be done, how they felt about the North Koreans. At that point, I had been the highest level American official to right. go to Pyongyang. Right. So we kind of exchanged views. Um, and, and you had driven up from Seoul, is that right? You hadn't gone through Beijing to Pyongyang. No. You yeah. drove up through Seoul? Through Seoul. Yeah. Actually, we flew in mm -hmm. from uh, Seoul to Pyongyang. Oh, okay. uh, and it was really so interesting because going back, except I noticed this more than anything, as you're flying over North Korea, it's just dark. And then you cross into South Korea, and it's like neon movie. Uh, totally, totally different. So we were kind of exchanging mm -hmm. views, but I don't think... Uh, I didn't get a sense that the Chinese were that much more knowledgeable mm -hmm. uh, than, than we were. Despite their of, communist despite ties. Despite their communist oh. ties. Right, that, that you had gone at the end of the Clinton administration when there was a sense that maybe there would be a diplomatic breakthrough with North Korea that did, didn't end up happening. Um, it, during that time, I'm talking about North Korea, do you remember the Chinese playing a particularly important role in that, that aspect of your travel to North Korea? No, I, I do not, Rip. Yeah. I mean, part of the thing that happened... By the way, there had been talks going on with the North Koreans since the beginning of the Clinton administration. And one of the first things that happened at the UN was um, the uh, North Koreans were threatening to get out of the nonproliferation treaty then. So we were dealing with that. 
Um, and there had been a number of talks, different kinds of talks. And the thing that's unfortunate, I think, is timing, that the North Koreans hadn't had this idea until kind of late summer 2000. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was the number two guy, Vice Marshal Cho, had come over to the U.S., and we were in the Oval Office, and he's dressed in full uniform, uh, gives President Clinton a folder that had in it an invitation for him to come to North Korea. And President Clinton said, well, maybe at some point I'd go, but it has to be prepared, mm -hmm. and so I'm going to ask the secretary to go. They weren't real happy about that. <laughs> and I know you were very excited. You know, you know, but the problem was we had no idea what I was going to do um, because we have no embassy there or anything. Mm -hmm. So I did not get a sense that the Chinese... Um, unless there was something going on that I didn't know. Uh, but um, they're really, we ran out of time. Fascinating. And then the election of 2000 happened. But um, we had begun some of the negotiations because this was about missile limits. Um, and there had begun to be negotiations in Kuala Lumpur. And then the election uh, changed all that. Right, right, well. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you kind of a couple of big picture things to wrap up. You, you talk often, I know in your class at Georgetown and other places about the kind of diplomatic toolkit. In your experience, what do you think kind of works with China in the diplomatic toolkit to kind of get, uh, it's hard to get other countries to do things that you want, broadly speaking, but what do you think works in the, in the Chinese well, context? Well, I have to give you some context of what I, I always say that as a diplomat, um, every country makes decisions based on the same five factors. And it's very important to know what e when you're sitting at a table what the other country's five factors are. So one factor is objective. Mm. What is the loca geographical location of the country? What is the population count? Things that are, that are countable. And then the second factor is subjective. How does a country feel about itself at any given time? How do the people feel? The third factor is how the government is organized. Uh, we know what ours is, but, uh, you know, Chinese one-party system, etc. The fourth are the bureaucratic politics, which are reflected in how the budget looks. And the fifth is the role of individuals. And so in order to know how to treat another country, you need to know what their five factors are and then try to figure out what tools are the most useful. And I do think that it's a combination of them, which is, Diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral, is kind of the bread and butter tool. The tool that is chosen the most often, because it's the middle option, is the economic tool, mm -hmm. either trade and aid or sanctions. Mm -hmm. And then there's the threat of the use of force, the use of force, intelligence, and law enforcement. That's it. So I think, as far as the Chinese are concerned, I think that diplomacy is the most important. Uh, but clearly, the economic tools are very much in play now, mainly because so much of our relationship is, is based on the uh, intersection of our economic systems and the influence that one has on another and how dependent we are on each other. So I think that's what we're seeing. Um, there is, however, um, a show of force going on um, with uh, what's happening in the South China Sea and pushing on some of the freedom of navigation points. Um, there have been military to military talks that sometimes take place at strange times, uh, but concern about accidents and how um, those would work. So in many ways, you have to use all the tools, but statecraft is trying to figure out which tool to use when. 
Sure. Um, I wanted to end, you've got a very successful book on fascism. Uh, congratulations mm. on that. Uh, and you've kind of spent a lifetime working with communist and post-communist states and single-party states and multi-party states. And I guess I would just say, is there anything from your book on fascism that helps understand the way the Communist Party of China works or those sorts of systems can work? And understanding that fascism is kind of the uh, single-party state at the end and single-party state from the right and communist China or single-party state on the left, but kind of broadly speaking on how those states work or how to interact with them or how we can think about them. Is there, is there something from your your long career and in the book that you think could be helpful? I, I think you've summarized things very well. And one of the things that I, as I did research for my book, um, was the historical aspect of things. And what separates communist systems from the others is revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened, Mussolini and Hitler came to power constitutionally. Mm -hmm. um, because in Italy, King Emmanuel transferred power to Mussolini. In Germany, von Hindenburg to um, Hitler. The current ones that I describe now, um, dictatorial authoritarian systems, everybody was elected. Mm -hmm. In Hungary, Orban was elected. I talk about Poland, mm -hmm. Turkey, Philippines, Venezuela. So they were all elected. The difference about left-wing mm -hmm. totalitarianism is that they come from revolutions. That was true in Russia, and it was true um, in China. And But the result is the same mm. in terms of control by one party with uh, no role for a minority. Mm -hmm. And then one thing that's unfortunately becoming truer, uh, the... Fascism is hard to define, by the way. I mean, we kind of toss the term around. Anybody we disagree with is a fascist. But it is a process, not so much an ideology mm -hmm. uh, when it's coming from the right. Mm -hmm. There's more ideology on the left. But it is the identification of the leader with one group of people at the expense of another. And to some extent, what's happening in China now with the Uyghurs um, is pointing them out as kind of the scapegoat for things that are going wrong. And so the process of it, whether it's by revolution or by election, uh, that way of dealing with a minority and blaming it for the economic problems or social potential problems. terrorism yeah. or social problems, I think that is something that's similar. Oh. Secretary Albright, thank you so much for the walk down memory lane and sharing your thoughts about uh, how to deal with China. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I think this is a great project. I'm glad you're doing it. Thanks so much. Secretary Madeleine Albright speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.